We're back. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a particular type of torture that's available to you for only about $1,000. Uh, you can sit in this narrow seat for 10 hours being bumped by people on either side and then they give you this thing that looks a little bit like food to carry over for a while. And So we've had that pleasure over the last couple of days or so and uh, we're, we're just starting to get acclimated back to a regular schedule. Uh, Ken, you got in yesterday sometime. If you got a nap, brother, just go ahead and do it. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I, I think we'll hit equilibrium sometime tomorrow. Uh, I want to tell you about our trip, though. We, we were over in Romania. We got a chance to get familiar uh, with a video to see how his, his uh, ministry functions. We're pumped up. We're excited about what's going on over there. The gospel is going forward in a, a great and powerful way. Uh, I want to share with you one experience that I had. We were in one camp, and we had the tents set up, and I'll, I'll get into all the detail about how the camps work. Uh, but there was, a, there was a house about 75 yards from where we were, and a guy sitting at the desk of the house. Uh, there he is right there. Uh, he was there at the 10 o'clock service. We went back in the afternoon at 4 o'clock. He was there. We went back at 7 o'clock. He was still there. And um, during the second service, we were giving away sandwiches. And um, the little girl... Uh, Ovidio gave her a sandwich and she went running over and gave him the sandwich and came running back and I thought well that's cute and uh, so she got in line and, and Ovidio gave her another sandwich and she ran over and her mother walked out of that door and she gave that sandwich to her mother and I thought well okay sandwich is supposed to be for the kids so she runs back and Ovidio gives her another sandwich and I'm like, what is going on here? And so I went up to a video and I said, who, who is that guy? He's been sitting there and uh, he actually sat there for three days. And the video said, he's, he's a drunk. He's an alcoholic. Uh, he's got a heart problem. Uh, he's got kidney problems. And that's what he does. He sits there. And so I, I said, well, why, why are we giving him all these sandwiches? And I'll tell you the answer to that question in a little bit. But I want to talk to you about the trip. So we're in Romania. It's an Eastern Bloc country. Uh, it has all the characteristics of an Eastern Bloc country. They're, they're emerging. Um, the cities are fairly cosmopolitan. Uh, there are people that are dressed fashionably. There's Wi-Fi all over the place. People have smartphones. and There are cars and parking spaces and everything. And so the cities are, are fairly nice. A lot of outdoor cafes and uh, you know, I, 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 Ken and I had the chance to uh, sit down one afternoon and enjoy a, a, a latte as we watched the city go by. Kelly was out taking pictures, and Juliana was doing a little bit of shopping. And um, it's when you get in the countryside, things start to change. Now, the countryside is beautiful. Uh, there are places over there that are just stunningly beautiful. Uh, so the, Romania is the breadbasket of the Eastern Bloc nations. Um, the soil is fertile. Uh, there are tremendous amounts of crops grown there. Uh, you can see, I mean, there's forests all over the place. What's not a forest is, is farmland. They're growing corn. They're growing soybeans. I mean, there, there's all sorts of crops being planted. Uh, and there are highways that crisscross the country. Not a lot of them. Um, they're relatively narrow highways, but they're, they're pretty well paved. You can go at a decent speed and get around. It's when you get off the highways and out of the city that things start changing. This is a country road right here, and that is actually a pretty nice road. Uh, and there's big stones on it. It's narrow. If you're going down this road and somebody's coming the other way, somebody has to back up. Um, uh, most of the roads that are outside the city are what you and I would consider somebody's driveway that needs a lot of work. And you can ride down these roads for hours at a time. Uh, I mean, all the vehicles are shaking apart. There's parts falling off them. The, the tires are bad on everybody's car. Uh, and, and the primary way of getting around is on these secondary roads. I have no idea how they find stuff. They're, the roads aren't marked. There's no address for people. You just have to know that, oh, this lady lives down this road, and we go down this road and take a bend over here to the right, then maybe we'll find her house. And I, I just sat in the car the whole time. I have 
where are we? What are we doing? And, you know, we don't know the name of the village we're in. Uh, so it, it, it can be very rudimentary. And to complicate all that, there are horses and wagons everywhere. So some people can't afford modern transportation. There we are in the middle of a city, and there's a guy hauling hay in a wagon, and traffic has to work its way around them. Now, not only are those horses and wagons in the city, but they're out in the country as well. You can be on a highway going 70 miles an hour or so, and if you're not careful, come around a the corner, there's a horse and wagon there. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you're, you're kind of always on the, the lookout for hazards and that sort of thing. And uh, when you add to that the fact that these people are crazy drivers, uh, you know, two lanes and, and they're passing when other cars are coming, uh, it really is kind of incredible because you get out there in the passing lane and you see cars coming and the guy next to you will kind of slow down and let you move in. I, we just don't see that type of courtesy here. You know, here it's like, oh, you're out there, you're on your own, buddy. Uh, but th it all works together, and the traffic keeps on moving. So there are a lot of interesting things. There are a lot of eccentricities. If you traveled in Europe, you know. If you walk into a bathroom, and there is a, a trash can in the bathroom, that's not a trash can for trash. Most of the plumbing systems are so old and so encumbered that you can't flush anything down the toilet. So they, they give you a trash can to put that in, and somebody has to clean that up. Yeah. I just wanted to give you a little image of Romania uh, so that you would have something to remember by. Yeah. Anyway, we, we would go into the gypsy villages. We, we would go into these areas that, um, well, you, you know, the gypsies are, they're, they're a people group that it, it, it's just amazing. They don't really have any status in the culture. Uh, they're non-persons. They're not registered with the government. They don't have driver's license. They don't have access to schools. They don't have access to the socialized health system that's there. Um, they're living on somebody else's land. Uh, they're kind of, for all intents and purposes, they're squatters. Um, it's just that nobody bothers them where they are. If somebody does, they just kind of get up and go build a house somewhere else. Um, and they're, they're not well regarded. They have no protection. Um, most of them are day laborers. Uh, they, they go out and they'll work the farms with somebody. You know, they, they, they have these huge uh, uh, farms and ranches, but they're not automated the way we are. Everybody does everything by hand. Uh, so uh, the owners will go hire the day laborers. Sometimes they get paid. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they don't get paid what... They, they had agreed to, and they have no recourse against it because they're not real people. Uh, so they don't have the protection of the police. Uh, they don't have the benefits of the government. Uh, and, and if they try to make too much trouble over these things, uh, the farm owner will then say, well, if you make trouble for me, I'm never going to hire you again. And you'll have a hard time getting work. So they don't have any recourse. And on top of that, uh, they live in a land that is dominated by the Orthodox Church. Uh, there are priests in every locality. There's a church in every locality. And the priests w control the gypsies by telling them what they can do and what they can't do. And with, if they do what they can do, then they'll get into heaven. If they don't do what the priest wants them to do, they might not get into heaven. They certainly won't be buried in the church cemetery. And there's a whole stigma about not being buried in the cemetery. So they're oppressed. Uh, they are illiterate. They, they don't know how to read, don't know how to write. But I've got to tell you something. They're, they're a beautiful people. They're not stupid. Uh, you know, we look at them, we go, we don't know how to read and write, and we, and we start thinking certain things about them. They're smart people. They're industrious. Uh, they're hard workers. They're absolutely experts at getting by with whatever they have. We were watching a lady do her wash. Um, if there's electricity in these gypsy villages, it's because they've tapped into some power line somewhere and are, are kind of stealing the electricity. This lady had a washer out in her front yard. And uh, having an electric washer or a dryer was a tremendous luxury there. She obviously didn't have a dryer, but I was watching her put the clothes in and start the washer, and I think the washer wasn't working real well because it didn't seem to have a spin cycle. 
And so she would get to that part of washing her clothes. She would take the clothes out of the washer, squeeze them out into a tub, and then put them back in the washer to rinse again. So they, they just make do with whatever they have, and, and their kids are just absolutely beautiful. And so what we would do is we would go into one of these areas, one of these small villages, and we'd set up a tent. And it happened somewhere around 9, 9.30 in the morning. Um, we'd set up a tent. We'd set up a sound system. Uh, we would turn the speakers towards the village and start playing kids' music. And inevitably, you know, people would see this caravan come into the village. They'd see the tent going up. There's some curiosity about what's going on. And when the kids' music would start, we'd get some kids from the village. And the very first thing that a video does with those kids is he gives them candy. And he gives them a couple pieces of candy. And he says, take these to your brothers and sisters. Take these to your friends. We've got a lot more. And so this small group of kids, five, six, maybe 10, 12 kids, will go running out into the village. And 15 minutes later, they come back and they got all the kids in the village with them. So we have a program that we ran. Um, they would do these songs, these children's songs, kind of like the Awana songs. There were, there were all these motions that people would go through. I was so proud I learned one of the songs. And I thought, I'm going to learn this language. At least I'll be able to do these songs. And it was a zum, 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 a zum, 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 gooly, 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 zum, 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 gooly, 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 zum, 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 adapi, adapi, gooly, 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 zum, zum, zum. And I thought, I know Romanian. So I asked our translator what that meant. He said, they're just silly words. They don't mean anything. <laughs> I, I was so proud of myself. So they do these songs, and then they'd hand out some candy. Then there'd be some teaching. They'd have some illustration that was pertinent to these kids. Um, and then there would be games. And the games were, you know, run over here, do this, hold the ball, play pass it between your legs and that sort of thing and, and the whole time everybody's having a good time and one of the things I didn't realize for the first couple camps is that at those games we've got all the kids in the village playing the games they never play together the kids in the village don't play together they don't have that sense of community they're working with their families they're trying to find food and so on and so forth so when a video comes into the village and does these games all the kids are playing the same game and it's a brand new thing for them and it becomes something that's very attractive for them, and they realize that they can actually relate to each other. Uh, they can get together and play games. So there's games, and then there's another teaching. And then at the end, there'll be more candy, uh, sometimes food. You know, I told you about the sandwiches. Uh, we made sandwiches. Uh, you know, I saw what the sandwiches were, and I went, I don't know about this. Uh, they went out and bought 10 loaves of bread. Every time you eat, there's bread all over the place. Bread's just a big thing. It's good, fresh bread. It's a lot of fun. Uh, but uh, we're in there, and I'm helping make sandwiches, and there's the loaves of bread. There are these tubs of margarine, and uh, there's some meat. I have no idea what this meat is. It's pink, and it's soft, and it looks to me like pate, but it doesn't smell much like any pate I've ever eaten. And I'm thinking, well, what do we do here? And, and Ovidio shows me. He said, put butter on the bread. So okay, I grab a piece of uh, bread and I put butter on it. And he goes, that's not enough. And I put some more in. He said, it's not enough, John. And I'm like, how much butter can you put on a piece of bread? He said, just keep putting the butter on. When, when, when I've got too much butter on, he says, it's okay. I put the piece of bread down. He says, now butter the other slice. So I put just as much butter on the other slice, and Ovidio puts these two little pieces of meat on there and slaps it together, and he's got a sandwich. And I thought, oh, my gosh, who's going to eat this? And I, I had to taste one. It was pretty good. I, it, it actually surprised me. It was pretty good. And I found out the meat was chicken. I've never seen chicken that looked like this before. So I'm sure it's all the parts of the chicken in there. But the sandwich was pretty good. And, and then at the end of, the, uh, of the, the program, we would hand out food. Maybe it would be candy. Maybe it would be cookies and crackers. Maybe it was a sandwich. And we would do that in the morning. And that ended at about noon or so. And we would tell everybody, come on back. We're going to be here at 2 o'clock or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. 
So when we would come back, there would be more people, more kids. And we'd go through the same program again. And at the end of some of those programs, we would hand out gifts. Um, in the village I'm going to tell you about, we handed out boots, shoes. I saw all these cases for, for shoes, and I thought, well, that's nice. Kids don't usually get excited over shoes. These kids went crazy. They started handing out the shoes, and the kids are they're jumping up and down, they're hollering, they're screaming and everything, and they're standing in line. And I realized that most of the kids had very little clothing to wear and no shoes. And we were in the summertime, and it, it, it was pretty nice outside, but the winter was coming, and the spring was coming, and because these roads aren't paved, uh, everything becomes a mud hole again, and so they've given these kids some shoes to wear. Now, that happens in the afternoon, and when they leave, they get more candy, and they say, tell your parents we're going to be here at 7 o'clock tonight. Now, that's where everything comes home, because when we return at 7 o'clock, the parents show up. Their kids have come home, they've been fed, they've got gifts. We handed out shirts at one camp, we handed out stuffed animals at a couple other camps, and the parents want to see what's going on. And the kids are going home and doing a zum, zum, zum. And what, what is happening? So the parents show up, and that's when we begin teaching. That's when we begin presenting the gospel. Now, we did this in, in a village called Jadejni, okay? And... Um, this was a new village. The gospel had never been preached in this village. Um, it was way out in the middle of nowhere. This is what the houses look like. That's fairly typical. Over in the corner, you can see a horse in a wagon. Uh, the houses don't have windows most of the time, frequently don't have doors, um, have dirt floors. Uh, but I've got to tell you something. Some of the things we saw, we realized the people are really a lot more like us than, than it would appear. Uh, Kelly and I watched two ladies in two houses go out and sweep their front yard, which was dirt. <laughs> and I'm thinking at first, why is she sweeping the dirt? And she's, she's got the dirt all cleaned up and the trash put off in the side in a burn pile. They don't have dumps. They have burn piles. You burn all of your trash. And I realized that, and, and when she got done with that, she looked over at us like this. And I said, oh, there are visitors in town. She's cleaning the place up. And she's trying to make it as presentable as possible. Uh, so, you know, their, their living conditions are rustic. Um, power is intermittent. There's no such thing as a sewage system. Uh, so there's filth all over the place. Uh, and they're making the best out of what they could do. So we go to Jagedjani and... We do the program, we do the songs, uh, we, we do the games, we, we hand out candy and food, and just about the time we're at near the end of that morning program, um, we look over and we see the police. They're, now they're about 200 yards away on a dirt road, and they're kind of watching us, and we watch them get in their car and leave, and 15 minutes later they came back with the local priest. Now, the priest comes walking up the road. He's got these long robes on, and he's got this large cross on his neck. And as he approaches us, he's got, he's got the cross out in front of him like this. And I'm standing there next to our translator, Keith, and I said, ah, oh, he thinks we're demonic. And he said, no, no, that's not what this is about. He's asserting his authority as the spiritual leader of this area. And he wants you to know that he owns this village and he's responsible for these people and he's here to see what we're doing and so I'm thinking well you know we're doing a good thing we're preaching the gospel we're taking care of the kids and everything and all of a sudden what I hear is no you're a threat to him so they don't teach their people the bible and I told you already, the priests keep the gypsies under control by making promises to them that if they're obedient to what the priest wants them to do, uh, that they'll get into heaven, and if they're not, they're going to go to hell. And so the last thing in the world that that priest wants is for us to teach the truth of the Bible. So he's there with the police to try and shut us down. And the only thing the police can do is come to us and say, well, there were some people complaining about the noise. Now, when we set up the sound system, we would turn the speakers towards the village, 
and that was what would bring the kids in. So we agreed to turn the speakers the other way and turn the sound down a little bit, and the police left. But the priest stood there for a long time and argued with Ovidio and his daughter. And they're, they're, they're paranoid about freedom that you can have in Christ. And they're, they're, they're teaching everything but the Bible. There's legalism there. And Ovidio said that that was a relatively benign encounter, that there have actually been altercations with the local priest when he shows up. And, and Ovidio is saying, and here's the man of God trying to punch me in the nose. Uh, so that was an interesting thing. Uh, the, the priest eventually left, and uh, we handed out uh, the stuffed animals to the kids. And uh, here's, here's what the people look like. Go ahead, put up the next slide. I mean, th- these kids... They're not just beautiful, they're happy. You know, we look at them as underprivileged. How can you get by without Wi-Fi? And, you know, they're, they're happy. They're, 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 they're grateful for the food that we give them. They're grateful for the candy. They're having a good time. Uh, there's a couple of women there. Um, that older woman in the, the bottom uh, right of the picture um, is 63 years old. And she has health problems. Um, Ovidio takes her medicine every two weeks because she's not eligible for health care. And so she's got diabetes, and Ovidio is supplying her with the medicine to control her diabetes. So that's the kind of guy that we're dealing with with, with Pastor Ovidio and his team. So uh, the weekend, the, the entire two-week period was kind of fly by the seat of your pants. Um, we were in a church uh, Ovidio had asked me to prepare three sermons. He said, I need a sermon on what sin is. I need a sermon on the fact that we're all sinners. And I need a sermon that tells us what the resolution to our sin problem is. I said, okay, I got those. We'll do it. Um, When we were at this village in Judendi, uh, Ovidio came to me just before the evening service. And he said, you know those three sermons? Yeah. He said, you need to condense them into one. I don't know if we're going to be able to come back. If the priest caused enough trouble, we're not going to be able to return. So I'm editing on the fly. We were in another church, and I'm sitting there watching the service go along and trying to make some sense out of what they're saying. And Ovidio at one point just looks down at me and goes, okay, you're on. I said, what? <laughs> he said, you, you're going to preach. And I, I, I need to find something to preach on right here. And yeah, so, you know, they... they they go where they need to go, when they need to go, and they do what they need to do when they need to do it. And so the schedule is always in flux. So at Jadedne, uh he said we need to do this into one sermon because we might not have a second opportunity. Uh, I need you to present the gospel. So I had the honor of preaching the first gospel sermon in this village that these people had never heard before. And so I want to share that sermon with you. And it starts out in Genesis. In the beginning, God. And this is something that's hard for us to imagine because in the beginning, there was nothing but God. No world, no universe, just God. And God is holy, and he is pure, and he is perfect, and he is powerful. He's so powerful that as he speaks, the power of his words bring the universe into creation. So for the first five days, here's what God does. He says, let there be light. And he says, the light is good. And then he says, let there be a heaven between the waters above and the waters below. We're not real clear on what that is, except that there's a heaven and there's a space between the waters below and the waters below. Uh, And that's good. And the next thing he does is in the waters below, he separates the land. And there's the land and there's the sea. And that is good. Then he creates by speaking the vegetation, the plants and the trees. And that's good. And then he creates, watch this, the sun and the moon and the stars. God is so powerful, so holy, his presence is so overwhelming that he has brought light to his creation without the sun, moon, and stars. So he creates the heavens and hangs them all in place, and that's good. Then he creates the creatures of the sea and the birds of the air, and he proclaims that to be good. Now, that, all that happens in the first five days. 
And on the sixth day, things really start to ramp up because he creates the beasts, he creates the livestock, and he creates everything that creeps on the ground. Now, this is pretty stupendous. In the first five and a half days, he's created all of the creatures that live on the earth, all the creatures that swim in the sea. He's created the world. He's created the heavens. He's created everything that we know to be in existence. And then, then comes his, his masterpiece. He begins to scoop some, ground, some earth together and makes it in the form of a man, uh, the likeness of his image. And God bends down and he breathes life into the man. Breathes life into the man who's made in his image. And this is the crown of his creation. And then on the seventh day, well, this is what happens on the seventh day, Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now listen carefully. God wasn't tired. God didn't wipe his brow and go, boy, that was hard. I need some rest. What God was doing was giving us the rhythm of his creation. There's a time for work, and there's a time for rest. And that would immediately apply to the man he created. He would work for six days, he would rest for the seven. And so, but that rhythm goes throughout all of creation, and it's a picture of eternity. Because there would be a time for us to work, and there would be a time for those who believe in God, for those who follow Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, there would be a time for them to rest, and that rest would be eternal. So God gives his creation a rhythm, and they're supposed to follow that rhythm as a way of honoring their creator. So we see the rhythm of creation. We see that everything's been made. The man is there. And then we find out that God has also created a garden. Now, I don't know what it looked like, but it had to be pretty fantastic. I mean, it was God's garden. So it had to be beautiful. It had to be abundant. And he put the man in it. And, and he, he said to the man, I've got one thing I need you to do. And this shows up in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. So God has made this man. He's made this world for him to live in. He's made this very special place called a garden that obviously we're going to find out needs no upkeep. The man is just going to live in the garden and enjoy the garden, and he's only got one thing that he has to listen to God about. Don't eat from those two trees. And everything is good. God has proclaimed it good. And then we see this in verse 18 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Now, everything in creation is good up until this point. The first thing in all creation that is not good is for the man to be alone. Now, a lot of people, when they hear the Bible... Uh, think that at that point God created the woman but that's not what happened God brought the animals to the man and said you're going to name all the animals and I want you to see what's happening here because God says it's not good for you to be alone you're going to spend time with me the very first relationship that the man has is this relationship with God as he's naming the animals. I don't know how long it took to name them, but I think it took a long time. When he's done naming the animals, God says there is yet, not yet, a suitable helper for him. So he puts the man to sleep, and now he takes the rib out of the man, and he makes the woman. She's uniquely created. Nothing in all of creation is quite like her. He brings her to the man, and the man says, 
This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, what's important for us to know here is that uh, there's a unique relationship between a man and a woman. And they are without clothing. They're living in the Garden of Eden. All of their needs are supplied. They're blessed abundantly by God. They don't even need clothing, and they are not ashamed. Then something unusual happens. We find out that there's a serpent in the garden. I don't think that this surprised God. I mean, he made everything. (laughs) He made all of the creatures, which means that he made the serpent as well. And the serpent is very tricky. And what he says to the woman is, it's true that God told you not to eat from any of the trees of the garden? And the woman thinks she's she's got him caught in, in, in a lie. And she goes, no, 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 what God told us was not to eat from that tree or even look at that tree. So the serpent distorts the word of God, and then the woman distorts the word of God as well. And the serpent tells the woman... The reason that God doesn't want you to eat from that tree is it's going to make you like God. And you'll know the difference between good and evil. And that God has misrepresented himself. The the, the insinuation is that God has misrepresented himself and what he really wants is he doesn't want you to be as powerful as he is. And we see the problem with the woman right there. The woman wants to be in charge. The woman wants to be in charge of her destiny. She wants to be self-determined. And so this is what happens. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate Well, that's some trouble. It's the one thing that God said not to do. And the woman in her desire to be self-determined has done that one thing that she was ordered not to do. Now, lest we think that the man is better than her or superior to her, look where he was. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. He was standing there watching her do it. And he ate. And as soon as he eats, their eyes are opened. Now they've got the knowledge of good and evil, and they're embarrassed because they have no clothing. And they try to cover themselves up. Now what we find out next is that it was the custom of God to come and walk in the cool of the afternoon with the man and the woman. So God comes and he's, he's where are you? Now, I've got to tell you something. God is not searching for them. God's not wondering where they are. Okay? God is trying to get them to come out and confess. He says, where are you? And the man says, uh, we were naked and we hid. And God says, who told you you were naked? You haven't eaten from that tree, have you? And that's when the finger pointing starts. Now, the relationship between the man and the woman and God has changed. Something's off kilter. They're embarrassed. They're ashamed. And the man begins, I mean, he does what all, all of us do, okay? He says to God, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Now, you've got to listen to what he's saying. Say, you know, if you hadn't given me that woman, I wouldn't be in this position. It's kind of your fault, God. So God then looks at the woman, and she does this. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Oh, no, it wasn't my fault. Don't point the finger at me. It's the serpent. So God is going to take care of all of it. And he levies these curses upon the serpent and the man and the woman. And he says to the serpent... You're going you're gonna to crawl on your belly. You're going to eat dust for all the days of your life. And, and then he kind of gives him a preview of what's going to happen in about 4,000 years or so. 
says, your offspring will be bruised on the head and you will bruise the woman's offspring on the heel. To the woman, he says, your pain in childbirth will increase and your pain in child rearing will increase. And while you long to have authority over your husband, he will have authority over you. And to the man, he turns and he says, you know, you had everything in the garden. I, I supplied everything for you. Now, now you will work in the soil and you will get your food by the sweat of your brow. It's not going to be easy. Relationship had changed. There was now an issue between them and God. And you know what? So far, it doesn't sound all too bad. It sounds to me like the serpent gets the worst end of the stick there. But that wasn't all God was doing. There was more, and this is where the hard part comes. In Genesis 3.23, it says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and the woman with him. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, what had happened was Adam's disobedience to his father in heaven was sin. And we see that the very first result of sin is separation from God our Father. Adam is sent out of the garden and it is impossible for him to get back in. There's no way it's going to happen. So we see that. And we say, wish I'd have been there. I wouldn't have done that. See, and what we have to recognize is that we all have the same problem. We all have that desire to be self-determined. We all have that, that, that longing inside to be in charge of our own fate, to be like God. We all have something inside us that calls us to move God off the throne and to sit in his place. We're all separated from God because we have the same type of nature that Adam had, a sin nature. And there's no earthly way to restore us back to a right relationship with God. Now, I know people will tell you that they're good. I know that people will tell you what you need to do to get back in the presence of God. I know that people will give you a long list of things that you can't do, otherwise you'll be uh, removed from his presence. But even those people that tell you these things are sinners themselves. Now we know this is true because the Apostle Paul gave us a book called Romans and in Romans chapter 3 verse 10 he says none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside and together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. No one escapes the separation from God that sin causes to happen. There are people that will tell you that they don't sin. But look at what the Apostle John says in his book, 1 John. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him, God, out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So all have sinned, all have fallen short of the standard set by God. And that means we are all doomed. We are all dead in our sins. We are unable to save ourselves. God is just. God is holy. He is pure. And we're not. 
And God says that the penalty for any sin is death. And it has to be paid for. What what do we do? I mean, if we've all sinned, if there's no way back, what do we do? We're unable to save ourselves. We're unable to pay for our sin. And the truth of the matter is, we can't work our way back into heaven. We can't work our way back into God's grace. But God knows this. And God loves us. And he's done something about it. We can't do anything about it, but God has. He sent his only son to be beaten and bloody. And he was, he was beaten horribly. And we need to look at what happened before he went to the cross because as ugly, as painful as that is, that's a depiction of what sin does to us. It bloodies us. It makes us into a caricature of who we're supposed to be. And Jesus came and took that beating and took that, 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 that shed blood to show us what our sin looks like. And then he allowed these people to nail him to the cross and he surrendered his life in payment for our sins. He died on the cross in our place so that we could live. Now we know this is true Because when they took him down off the cross, they put him in a tomb, and he lay there for three days, and then he arose. He arose from the dead. And that that makes everything that he promised us to be true. We can trust what he said is accurate because he's the only one that came back. So the only question we have to answer How do we get this new life? How do we get this redemption available through Jesus Christ? Again, the Apostle John gives us the answer. And it's pretty pretty astounding. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. This is John chapter 3, starting with verse 1. A ruler of the Jews. We have to understand who Nicodemus was. He was a religious man. He was... He was at the top of the heap. He's a teacher amongst the Jews. They looked up to him. He had prestige. He had status. He had influence. He had authority. And he's standing before Jesus. It says, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, he didn't want anybody to see him because he had his reputation to worry about. He said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. He's seen the evidence, the same evidence that we've seen, only we've seen something even greater. We've seen Jesus, Jesus rise up from the grave. Nicodemus has seen Jesus do these miracles and these signs and his wonders. He says, I know you're from God. Jesus answered him, and he said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is talking to a mature man. Talking to a man who has a a, a glowing career that he's built. And he says, you want to know how to do this? You got to be born again. Well, that didn't make any sense to Nicodemus, who said, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? You see, Nicodemus was saying, physically, this is impossible. That can't happen. Here's Jesus' answer. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And what he tells Nicodemus is something supernatural has to happen if you're going to be saved. If you're going to be redeemed, some transformation has to occur. It doesn't make sense physically. It happens in the spirit realm. You have to be renewed. You have to be restored. You have to be transformed from the inside out, and it is a work of the Holy Spirit. 
Well, Nicodemus said, how can these things be? Jesus said, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? He said that one of the high, holy men of Israel, you don't really get it, do you? You call yourself a teacher. And you want to know how to have a relationship with God and you think there is something physically that has to happen. I'm telling you, something has to happen in your spirit. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. And Jesus is saying, you, you know, you've seen all these things, but you still don't believe me. He says, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. That's him, son of man. And as Jesus lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. He's talking about the cross. That, watch this, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus said, this isn't that hard. There's no list of things to do. There's no list of prohibitions. What you've got to do is believe in me. If you believe in me, the transformation begins. If you believe in me, everything changes. Then he said this. Maybe some of you have heard this before. For God so loved the world. This is why he did it. God loved the world. That's how we know he loves us that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. He said, if you believe in the son of God... Nobody can take that away from you. No man living on earth can condemn you because God has put his seal on you. It happens by grace. What does grace look like? I want to go back to the guy at the house. Ovidio's handing out sandwiches to his kid. She's running in the house and coming back, running in the house and coming back. And, you know, i got to confess, I was offended by that. <laughs> I'm being taken advantage of. I put those sandwiches together. I put all that butter on those spread. And I said, so what, why do you allow this to happen, Ovidio? And he said, that man is lost. He said, if... She had taken, if the little girl had taken the sandwich to the mother, the, the man would have taken it away from the mother and eaten it himself. So I knew she would take the first one to her father. And I knew she would take the, first, the second one to her mother. But I wanted her to eat as well. So I gave her a third one. And I said, but, but the guy doesn't do anything. And Ovidio said to me, John, that man is more in need of the grace of God than anybody else in this village. He lives in a culture that's oppressed. He's been taken advantage of. He's sick. Yes, he's not doing anything. Yes, he's taking advantage of me. But this is what the love of God looks like. And that's what Ovidio does. We've been talking a long time about going into this community and showing the love of Christ. And I've got to tell you something. We, we had three services where people came forward, and I was astounded at the number of people that came forward because they got a glimpse of the love of Christ. The love of Christ comes in a piece of candy, in a pair of boots, in a shirt that nobody has, and a sandwich that is just given to you just because you're who you are. This is what our team looked like. We spent two weeks together. It was amazing two weeks I learned, I was humble, and I want to go back. Now, we'll have more details on this, but, you know, we've got two opportunities to take mission trips here. For those people that want to go work 
and do good labor to help people. We go to Peru in the wintertime. We're going to go to Romania in the summertime. For those people that want to minister, uh, they're both worthy causes. We'll have dates for you. I've got to discuss this with the elders. We'll have dates for you sometime in the next couple weeks or so. And we're going to plan this next trip a little bit better than we did this one. But we've learned a lot of lessons. And I've got to tell you something. Pastor Ovidio, I've run into a lot of people that claim to be apostles. And my first question to somebody that tells me they're an apostle, I said, what church are you an apostle to? Are you, an, are you an apostle to my church? Because I don't think we recognize your apostolic authority. Ovidio is as close to a modern-day apostle as I've ever seen. He's planted at least 30 churches in Romania. He's got this incredible network of pastors. And he plants the church by doing these camps. When we were done with that camp in <laughs> when we were done with that camp, a video brought in four pastors from villages around there and said, okay, you're going to start the church. And if we go back next year, there'll be a church there. It works every time. Ministers of the kids, draws the parents in, people get saved, and they, be, they start a church. And so I've watched them. Uh, we did a funeral. Uh, I had, had an opportunity to speak at the memorial service for one of the founders of the ministry. And a video brought in 12, 14 pastors to be part of this funeral. Uh, so he's doing a good work. He deserves our respect. He deserves our support. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you for the simplicity of the gospel. We thank you, Father, that it comes by grace. We thank you for the message of grace, the message of mercy, the message of redemption available through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the opportunity to be your messengers. We thank you, Father, for the congregation here who supports these movements, Father, uh, who plays such a big part. They don't all go to Romania. They don't all go to Peru. But we're all part of the work, Father. And we thank you for those who are the tip of the spear that go and put feet to the ground. But we thank you, Father, for a body of believers that believes in the gospel and the power to save and the power to transform. Thank you for the opportunity to work together hand in hand for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.